again, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm Nurse Mo, and as always, super excited to be here with you studying today. So today is episode 204, and we're going to be diving into immunity by looking specifically at HIV and AIDS. So before we tackle that big topic, I do want to take a quick moment for a listener shout out to my San fam. And this one goes out to Keegan, who writes this. Nurse Mo is funny, informative, easy to listen to, and highly motivating. If I'm not working or sleeping, I've likely got Nurse Mo going on Spotify. I've binged every episode of Straight A Nursing since deciding to make a career change. I bought the planner, and it's amazing. I bought Nurse Mo's book and followed her instructions with my pre-courses. Seriously, thank you, Nurse Mo, for helping a gung-ho type A like myself feel prepared for my program. I'll be working full-time while in nursing school, so being extra prepared and overly organized is an absolute must. Also, I recommend the Facebook group. Everyone is super helpful, and it's nice to have a sense of camaraderie, even in the distance learning lifestyle. Keegan, thank you so much for taking the time to submit that review of the podcast and all the other resources that you're using. I agree. The Thriving Nursing Students Facebook group is full of just awesome, awesome people. So anyone listening, if you do want to get like a sense of camaraderie and join other students who are there to thrive, then I would love for you to join us at Thriving Nursing Students. So again, Keegan, thank you so much, and I'm wishing you all the very best. Okay, so let's dive in to HIV and AIDS. So human immunodeficiency virus, otherwise known as HIV, and acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, also known as AIDS, are two conditions along the same spectrum. So HIV is the virus that destroys those CD4 cells, and AIDS is the condition that results when the immune system is severely, severely impaired. So think of it this way. While everyone who develops AIDS has HIV as their underlying condition, not everyone who has HIV will progress into having AIDS. So in HIV, an RNA retrovirus destroys those CD4 cells. Those are also known as helper T cells. And they're called helper T cells because they help. They play really important roles in adaptive immunity by activating and essentially helping other immune cells. So these cells are the B cells, which are those cells that produce the antigen-specific immunoglobulin, also known as antibodies. So B cells make antibodies. Cytotoxic T cells are also known as CD8 cells. So remember, the helper T cells are CD4. The cytotoxic T cells are CD8 cells, and these are killer cells that fight viruses, bacteria, and malignant cells as well. And then we have the macrophages, and the macrophages are those cells that detect and destroy bacteria and other pathogens via phagocytosis. And then we have N 
K cells or natural killer cells. And these cells mainly attack viral pathogens as well as cancer cells. So there's lots of different cells involved in immunity. And the CD4 cells are the helper that kind of activate and get everything happening. So over time, HIV, this virus, destroys CD4 cells faster than they can be produced. And what this does is it leaves the individual highly susceptible to both infection and cancer. Some common opportunistic infections, and we call them opportunistic infections because it's like the pathogen, the virus, whatever it is, is taking advantage of an opportunity when the immune system is down. So common opportunistic infections in HIV are things like tuberculosis, candidiasis, pneumocystis pneumonia, also called PCP, and Kaposi's sarcoma. And then individuals can also develop cancers, including those that originate from lymph cell tissue, such as lymphoma, and then other types of cancers as well. So we'll talk about these more in a little bit. But fortunately, advances in treatment have made complications from HIV much less common than they used to be, and also less severe. However, you can still have individuals who do get opportunistic infections and complications, and this can be maybe they are HIV positive and they don't know it. Maybe they don't get treatment for their HIV, or maybe they're getting treatment, but the treatment is ineffective. So let's talk a little bit about when does HIV progress or become AIDS. So that key complication of HIV is AIDS, acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, which is said to be present when the CD4 count drops below 200 cells per cubic millimeter. Or if the patient has one or more opportunistic infections known as AIDS-defining illnesses. And there are quite a few of these. So the important thing to know is the patient can either have that CD4 count that's below 200 or an AIDS-defining illness with or without that CD4 count being 200 or below. So some of the AIDS-defining illnesses, which again are opportunistic infections, are invasive cervical cancer, mycobacterium tuberculosis, HIV-related encephalopathy, esophageal candidiasis, histoplasmosis, chronic intestinal cryptosporidiosis, which causes just chronic, horrible diarrhea and inflammation. I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation of this one, pneumocystis urovecci, which is a fungal pneumonia. You will usually just hear this called pneumocystis pneumonia or PCP. You could also have another AIDS-defining illness such as cytomegalovirus retinitis with a loss of vision. Kaposi's sarcoma, which I mentioned earlier, and then wasting syndrome, which is basically a weight loss greater than or equal to 10% of the individual's body weight with a concurrent diarrhea, weakness, or fever for more than 30 days. So those are just some of the AIDS-defining illnesses. There are quite a few more, but those would be some of the common ones that you might see. Now, the average onset of AIDS is about 10 years after infection with untreated HIV. However, 
Again, early detection and lifelong treatment can greatly increase the length and quality of life for those individuals affected by HIV. So now that you've got a little bit of the background and kind of a basic understanding of HIV and AIDS, let's go through this using the straight A nursing latte method. So this is a systematic method that really zones in on the key things to know for your nursing school exams. And I even still use this kind of framework when I'm thinking through a patient condition at the bedside. Of course, the caveat to any of these is always defer to your institution, whether it's your school, your facility, your hospital, etc. So L stands for how does this patient look? And what we mean by this is what do you notice about the patient? What are their signs and symptoms? So it's really important to understand that the progression of HIV to AIDS is unique from person to person. And again, not everyone is going to progress to AIDS. And many people with HIV live long and uncomplicated lives with proper HIV treatment. And those people, likely zero symptoms, okay? When we have untreated HIV or someone who's maybe their medication regimen is not effective, there will be symptoms as the disease progresses. So here's how it generally looks. So Within about two to four weeks of that initial infection, most individuals will have flu-like symptoms, and this can be fever, swollen lymph nodes, they could have a sore throat, body aches, have nausea, headache, be really tired, and have a rash. And then after that initial acute infection, that HIV becomes more of this chronic disease where people can go a long time up to maybe even 10 years before they have some kind of opportunistic infection and progression to AIDS. So as that CD4 count drops and the viral load of the HIV of that virus increases, the symptoms will get more severe. And again, they'll start having more and more of these infections. Patients at that stage may start complaining of more severe symptoms like night sweats, chronic diarrhea, persistent fevers, and severe, severe fatigue. So when you look at the opportunistic infections, there are a lot. I mentioned a few of them a moment ago. I can't possibly go through every single one and what the signs and symptoms are. Each one of those could be a complete episode all on their own. But some of the common things that you might see are related to the mouth. So with the oral cavity, thrush is not uncommon. Mouth ulcers are not uncommon. And then something called oral hairy leukoplakia is a condition that is triggered by the Epstein-Barr virus. And in someone whose immune system is down, it's going to present and it's going to have these white patches on the tongue. That's oral hairy leukoplakia. Again, also oral thrush and mouth ulcers. Kaposi sarcoma is another one that I mentioned earlier. It's a pretty common opportunistic infection that looks like purple pink spots on the skin. If you watch the movie Philadelphia, which I'm probably aging myself here, but that movie shows the struggle of people with HIV and AIDS back before there were actual treatments. And you can see examples of Kaposi's sarcoma in that movie. The patient may complain of abdominal cramps. They may complain of diarrhea, and these are associated with parasitic infection. These can be cryptosporidium, 
or cystosporiasis. That I give myself a B minus on the pronunciation of that one. But again, parasitic infection causing abdominal cramps and diarrhea. They could have reduced visual acuity due to cytomegalovirus retinitis. And then encephalopathy and progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy can cause alterations in neurological function and level of consciousness. You could even see things as severe acute confusion. Um, with that multifocal leukoencephalopathy, you could see paralysis, difficulty speaking, and blindness. And then fever blisters around the mouth, the genitals, or anus are due to the herpes simplex virus, which is another opportunistic infection. And then because a lot of these patients can get that pneumonia, a patient with respiratory infection is going to be showing signs of respiratory compromise. So again, very wide range of signs and symptoms, things you might notice about a patient with HIV. Another thing I might say is low body weight because of that wasting syndrome. But again, as these opportunistic infections present, of course, the signs and symptoms are going to be related to each of those. So the A in LATTE stands for assess. How do you assess this patient? So assessments for a patient with HIV are going to focus on watching for those opportunistic infections. So getting a full set of vital signs, doing a thorough skin assessment to identify conditions that could be occurring such as Kaposi's sarcoma, candidiasis, the presence of flea blisters and things like that. You want to weigh the patient, assessing for drastic and unexplained weight loss or lack of appetite, which is also really common. Listen to their lungs because, again, respiratory infection is not uncommon. Assess their bowel habits. Chronic diarrhea can definitely occur. And with that, you want to assess for dehydration because that can definitely be a consequence of diarrhea. You also want to assess the patient's understanding of their medication regimen and their understanding of ways to prevent the spread of HIV. And then again, looking at the patient's individual opportunistic infections, your assessments are going to be very geared toward each one of those if they are present. So the first T in LATTE stands for tests. What tests are likely to be ordered? So we have HIV tests that the CDC recommends everyone age 13 to 64 receive as a screening at least one time, as well as all pregnant women. And then individuals who are considered higher risk should be screened more often, and this can be yearly to every three to six months, depending on that individual's risk profile. And the test utilizes blood or saliva and can detect HIV at varying times after exposure, depending on what kind of test is used. So for example, an antigen antibody test utilizing venous blood can usually detect the virus 18 to 45 days after exposure, while other tests may take up to 90 days to detect the virus after an exposure. So depending on what kind of test there are, and there are a few different types, testing too soon after the exposure can lead to a false negative result. So that's the key thing to know here. You also want to monitor a confirmed infection. So once the patient has been diagnosed with HIV infection, it's important that their CD4 levels and the viral load be closely monitored. Now, a normal CD4 level is approximately 
500 to 1500 cells per cubic millimeter. And recall that for AIDS, it's less than 200 cells per cubic millimeter. And then we also want to measure that viral load, which measures how much of the virus is in the system. So typically, the patient will get a test for their viral load done at the time of diagnosis, and this gives us a baseline. And then future tests are done, and it's very important that the patient get the same type of test because there are a few different types. The future tests are done, and we compare that viral load against the baseline. And that tells us if the patient's viral load is improving or getting worse. And the goal, of course, is for it to improve over time and get lower with medication, even getting it down to undetectable levels in some cases. Other lab tests include a CBC to monitor for anemia and infection. Your patient may also be getting LFTs or liver function tests because sometimes the medications that are used can impact liver function. So we need to keep an eye on the liver. And then we have something called resistance testing. So if an individual develops resistance to HIV medications, the virus will be able to replicate and can lead to progression of disease. A drug resistance test called TruGene, and that is trademarked, can be used to determine if the individual with HIV has a mutated form of the virus that is not responsive to their antiretroviral therapy. So patients with a resistant form may need a different type of therapy, or perhaps therapy will be unsuccessful. We also have chest x-rays. If the patient is suspected to have respiratory involvement, the MD is likely going to order a chest x-ray, possibly even a chest CT. And then biopsies could be done. Some patients with untreated or poorly controlled HIV develop opportunistic cancers, so biopsies may be ordered to determine the type and the stage of the cancer. So the next letter in LATTE is another T, and this one stands for treatment. So what treatments will be provided? So the mainstays are pre-exposure prophylaxis and post-exposure prophylaxis because we want to prevent infection as much as we can. So pre-exposure prophylaxis, which also goes by the name PrEP, is for those individuals who are HIV negative but high risk for contracting the virus. So there are two key PrEP medications that are approved by the FDA at the time of this recording. One is Truvada and one is Descovy, and both are taken once per day and can reduce the risk of getting HIV from sexual activity by approximately 99%, which is a amazing, and reduce the risk of getting HIV from injection drug use by approximately 74%. So really, really effective medications. But then what about the individual who gets exposed to HIV? Is there anything we can do for them? Yes, we can use something called post-exposure prophylaxis, which you may hear called PEP. And this is, again, used for individuals who have been exposed to HIV. So PEP is utilized to reduce the chance of that individual becoming HIV positive. So you'll often see uh, people who have had a needle stick at work, for example, you would get that PEP treatment if you were stuck by a needle by someone who was HIV positive or for whom their status was unknown and you were taking that extra step to be extra careful. 
The key with PAP is that it is only effective when taken within 72 hours of the exposure, and it consists of a combination of two to three medications taken for about a month. I think it's a period of 28 days. Note that it is not 100% effective, and there are side effects with that. So looking at the person's disease risk and then the side effect profile of the PEP may come into play. And then we have treatment for those who have HIV, and this is antiretroviral therapy. And there have been enormous advances in antiretroviral therapy, which goes by the short name ART. So ART is a combination drug regimen utilized to suppress the virus, maintain CD4 levels, and prevent opportunistic infections. So in some patients, these regimens, again, can get that virus down to undetectable levels, which is fantastic. The specific regimen utilized is going to vary from person to person, but will generally consist of about three medications from at least two different drug classes. And this is highly complex, and there's no way I could convey everything to know about these medications to here. So I'm going to link to a list of FDA-approved HIV medications in the episode notes. If you want to go take a look and see the variety of drug classes and all the different medications, because you will be seeing some of these in your clinical settings and on your exams. And then another treatment, not necessarily a treatment, but it is something that the MD would have to order, is a case management consult. A case manager can help the patient access low-cost or even free medications because some of these therapies are very expensive and also just help the patient navigating their illness and all the things that they need to do, keeping up with doctor appointments and lab testing and navigating the healthcare system for the best possible outcome. And then the E in the LATTE method stands for educate What are some key education components for a patient with HIV or AIDS? So always teaching patients how HIV is transmitted through the blood, through the bodily fluids, so that they can help identify their own high-risk behaviors that could lead to transmission with the goal of reducing transmission. If the individual uses injection drugs, you can teach them about the importance of using clean needles every single time and of the availability of needle exchange programs in your area if they do exist. You want to ensure the patient understands how to take their PrEP, their PEP, or their antiretroviral therapy medications. Teach the patient the signs of infection to watch for and also to report any significant and unexplained weight loss. You want to teach the patient the importance of overall maintaining a healthy lifestyle, doing things like avoiding smoking, avoiding alcohol, exercising regularly, and eating a well-balanced diet. You basically want to get the body into a position where it can be as healthy as possible. And then teach the patient with AIDS, with or without an opportunistic infection, the importance of infection prevention. Again, these patients very, very susceptible to infection. So in the clinical setting, these patients will be in what's called reverse isolation, where that personal protective equipment is utilized not to prevent the healthcare worker from contracting something from the patient, but to prevent the healthcare worker and visitors from spreading infection to that immunocompromised individual.
That patient should also receive education on key infection prevention measures such as avoiding raw fruits and vegetables, eating only cooked foods is a very common thing that these patients are instructed to do, drinking only bottled water, and practicing really good hand hygiene. Another thing that you'll see in the clinical setting is that we do not allow fresh flowers into the rooms of patients with this severe um, immunocompromised status because the water is a breeding ground for bacteria. So just explaining why that is necessary. And then make sure your patient understands any follow-up lab tests that need to be conducted and at what intervals. Again, we're going to be monitoring the CD4 count and the viral load. And then lastly, if the individual is taking their antiretroviral therapy and maintains an undetectable viral load, the CDC states that they essentially do not have a risk of transmitting HIV to others, though they should continue to practice safe practices and continue to have their viral load assessed to ensure that they continue to remain safe. So I hope this general overview of HIV and AIDS helps you understand how to care for these patients in clinical, on your case studies, in your sim lab, and on your exams. And again, as always, defer to your facility, defer to your instructors, your school's protocols, hospital's protocols, and procedures, of course. But this should be a general overview to help you understand this complex subject a little more clearly. And I know a lot of you listen before you even start nursing school, and I love that. I love that you are so excited to learn. So if you're a new nursing student, I want to invite you to download my free new nursing student checklist, which has some core things that you can do before school starts to get ready and prepped for nursing school. So I will put the link to that in the episode notes as well. And then next week, I will see you back here. We are going to be diving into the nitty gritty about nurse residency programs. So if you're getting close to graduating or thinking about your next steps after graduating, a nurse residency program can be an excellent way to transition into practice. So we're breaking those down next week. See you then. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.